Welcome. God bless you this evening. Thank you for singing that hymn. That is a beautiful hymn, and I especially like the message in the in the from this aspect. Just because sometimes it seems like God has led us somewhere. And then He seems to draw away and leave us there. And sometimes we say, why? Why God? What What happened? Why can't I hear You anymore? But I just want to reassure you with that hymn, there is a love that will not let you go. And you can rest your weary soul in Jesus. And we can give back the life that we owe to Him so that in God's time, the ocean depths of the life, the flow of the life of God in us can be richer and fuller Amen. Let's we are commissioned to talk about rooted disciples. Being rooted disciples. So you see here on the board a beautiful blue oak. That's a blue oak. I asked my son Seth to draw me a nice, beautiful blue oak. There it is. Russ talked about a, a blue oak and just how its roots go out a quarter mile just to give that tree some stability. If I was half the artist that my son is, I would draw you for you a coconut palm. We saw some coconut palms, and this is kind of how they grow. I don't know how they start out, but this is how a lot of them look. They have this root system down here. I don't know what their root system looks like, and, and I won't be able to draw you palm leaves. But I want you to see this coconut palm and this blue oak. Both of them are rooted. What's, what makes a coconut palm look like that, do you think? Adversity. Hypersity? Adversity. Adversity. I thought you had a technical term you were throwing out there. <laughs> I don't know, but I sort of imagine a day in the life of that tree where a storm came along and all the rain softened the soil and all the wind blew that tree over till it was laying like this. But by the grace of God, that tree didn't stay down. It started growing back up towards the light again. And I just think that's a really good 
illustration for us of rooted and grounded because not every tree looks like a stunning, beautiful blue oak that's majestic and looks like it has never known a day of adversity in its life. But a coconut palm is equally majestic and beautiful in its own way. Rooted and grounded. Let's look together at Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to start reading in verse 19. It says, For it pleased the Father that in Jesus should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, that is the Father, by Him, Jesus, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight if if ye continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the Gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven. You hath He reconciled to present you. He has reconciled you to present you before Himself holy and unblameable and unreprovable. Now let's go over to 2 Colossians, Colossians 2, verse 6. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised Him from the dead." And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath He quickened together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to His cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. 
So rooted disciples, being rooted and grounded, let me just give you a little bit of a foundation for the necessity of being rooted and grounded. It's probably obvious, but in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, it says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. In Ephesians 4, it says that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. And I, I think it's 1 Timothy 4 says, the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter days some shall depart from the faith. In 1 John, the book, the book that we have been studying, the themes of 1 John together. 1 John, John tells us, Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Young men and young women, sisters, brothers, it is the last time. Perilous times are coming. Storms are coming. Deception. Apostasy. Terrible times are coming. And we want you to be rooted disciples, grounded and settled. The Scriptures call out to us right now. They're calling out to us to be rooted and grounded. And I, so we could contrast against this right here. You can probably imagine better than what I could draw a, a cup, a styrofoam cup on a lake. We live by a lake and, and there's often a breeze and there's often styrofoam for whatever reason. There's a lot of styrofoam in that lake. And there's a lot of wind. And that styrofoam, it just goes wherever the wind decides to take it. It has no stability whatsoever. And when I picture rooted disciples, I'm picturing the root system of a beautiful blue oak. I picture a, a, a ship like the Titanic, let's say. And you already know this, but how much of the ship do you actually see? above the waterline. I don't know the percentage, but it's a small percentage. It, maybe someone can tell us. But when you see a ship, you're just seeing a little bit of that ship. Most of it is down below the waterline where no one sees it. And it's that that gives it ballast and stability so that it can navigate the ocean. And I want you just to keep those kinds of pictures in your mind. Build below the waterline. It's whatever that you do below what people can see that's really going to be establish you so that you can be rooted and grounded. I want you to keep those, those images in your mind. The contrast of a, of a styrofoam cup just floating around. Everything that there is to see on that thing is there, visible. It's all up there. The only thing there is, it's all visible. There's nothing below the surface. So, let's look together. 
The Scriptures are calling out to us to be rooted and built up. I want to give you three warnings before we get into looking at four things that can help us be rooted and grounded disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look here in chapter 2, verse 6. It says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. The assumption is that you have received the Lord. There's no business, there's no purpose, there's no sense talking about being rooted in something if you haven't ever started. If you haven't had regeneration, if the seed hasn't germinated, there's no roots. There's nothing to talk about. So having therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. If so be that you have received Him. And and we could develop that maybe a little more. How did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? It's very important as we think about being rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. That's kind of our, our verse that, that we want to anchor to. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. So, we're going to look at three warnings. There's a beware lest any man spoil you. There's a let no man therefore judge you. And there is a let no man beguile you that we want to look at. Because if we're going to be rooted and grounded, we need to be warned. We need to know what to be prepared for. We've got, we've got this in verse 8. It says, Beware lest any man spoil you. Who can tell me what that word spoil means? Real quick. Rob. To plunder. To steal. Beware lest any man spoil you. We're talking about being rooted and not robbed. We're talking about people that were once alienated and enemies in our minds by wicked works that Jesus has reconciled so that He can present us holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. So beware lest any man spoil you, rob you through philosophy. And I, I would just say this beware, this spoiling comes along the lines of man's wisdom. Because you are, you are a new creature in Christ and there are, there are people out there that are going to come along and say, oh, that's really great, you know. So you got this new thing going. Depending on where you're at and, and what context you live, whether you're getting ready to go to a college in Seattle, this is probably going to hit you in Seattle. And beware, sister, lest any man rob you there. I suspect anyone who's been to very much college, they've had this where philosophy and vain deceit and tradition of men and rudiments of the world come and they try to spoil you. They're very subtle about it. They don't beat you up. May sometimes feel like it. 
But this is man's wisdom trying to steal the life of Christ that you have. But particularly, it says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy. I'm warning you, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy. Many good men and many good women have been spoiled and robbed by philosophy. I love philosophy. <laughs> What's the definition of philosophy, by the way? What does it mean? Is it wisdom? Sophie? Knowledge? I didn't look it up. I had it in my mind it was the love of knowledge. The love of knowledge. It's just loving knowledge. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with loving knowledge? That's sort of that's what philosophy is going to come along and say, oh, you know, that's great. You tell me what you know, I'll tell you what I know, and and we'll just hear and, and tell these new things, and we'll just it'll be very interesting. We'll share. You share your truth, I'll share mine. We'll have a good time. But so much of philosophy is a distortion of truth by human reasoning. And that's where the danger of philosophy lies. Philosophy is the distortion of truth, by and large, by human reasoning. Or even a suppressing of truth in unrighteousness. Let's look at that. And this is where it gets serious. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18. I just want to read that because it's the power of the Word of God that's going to change us tonight. I'm thinking about philosophy suppressing the truth and robbing you. And I want you to be warned about this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. By unrighteous acts, they suppress the truth. By unrighteous ideas and thoughts and presentations, teaching and doctrine, they suppress the truth through their unrighteousness. But it gets worse because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them. They're clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Beware, professing themselves, oh, you don't think this applies to you? This is somewhere way out there? Beware, this isn't way out there. This is where you go to school. This is where you work. Change the glory of God into an image. So God gave them up. They changed the truth of God into a lie. God gave them up. They changed the natural use into that which is against nature. And as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, this is, this is philosophy. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. This is the, the decadent descent of philosophy. Let me tell you about a man. He had a lot of money and apparently had a lot of time and apparently he had a lot of mental acumen. 
This was one of the... This man was a prodigy. This man was outstanding. Um, wow. This man's name was Solomon, and he explored much in philosophy. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's really a philosophical inquiry. And in his inquiry, he does not consider, nor does he consult, divine revelation. That's very consistent with philosophy. They're interested in human what we can learn and what we can think about and what we can reason and what we can decide among ourselves with the best information that we can gather under the sun. Solomon explored a lot of things in philosophy. In his quest to understand, and I get these from Ecclesiastes, it says, he was wanting to understand what profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun. What, pro what is it that is... Good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. This is the pursuit of philosophy. And this can be a subtle trap to some of us. Not all of us. Some of us are more, have a more of a tendency to get um, moved away from the hope of the Gospel by philosophy. Not everybody. But I just want to warn you again, and I, I want to contrast philosophy with Philo Verity. Now, I don't know if it's okay to make up words here at Bible school or not. Is that all right? Thank you. Caleb said that was all right. But I want you to look with me at 2 Thessalonians 2 because this is where it's going to get intense, brothers and sisters. And I want to warn you lest any man rob you and move you away from the hope that you have in the Gospel. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, and we're just jumping in, but it says, Then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of His mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of His coming, even Him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they received not the love of the truth. I want those words to make you shake. They received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Beware, beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy. Solomon's conclusion, I want us to read that together because there's, it's, it's beautiful. It's intense. And I think sometimes we just kind of roll it off of our tongues and, and we can say it so well. But we don't let it. We don't meditate on it and think about really what it means. We just say, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter of the fear of God. And... But let's listen to the words of this. I want to start back up in verse 8. Maybe I'm taking too much time on this philosophy thing, but perhaps it's because that's maybe a little bit my own tendency, and I think there's probably some people here that could stand to be warned about this. But Ecclesiastes 12, 
verse 8 says, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. All is vanity. That was his conclusion. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge, yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. And further, by these, my son, be admonished. By these words of truth, by the things that are written that are upright, by the words that are acceptable. He says, By these, my son, be admonished. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Philosophy will just make you tired just as much as a hard day's work, pouring over some tome, trying to figure out what's true. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be bad, evil. So beware, but behold, it greater than Solomon is here. It greater than Solomon is here. Beware, we want to be rooted so that no one rob us of the hope we have in the Gospel. He says, Beware lest any man spoil you through vain deceit. Vain deceit. Just empty deceit. And what I, what I think about with empty deceit are three things. There's one thing that is just plain empty deceit. But so many people are taken by it. It seems like it would be so obvious that it wouldn't happen, but it happens all over the place. And that is the pursuit of pleasure. The pursuit of pleasure is such a vain deceit. But I want to warn you, beware, lest you be taken away by the pursuit of pleasure. And it makes me think of the seed that fell among thorns. There was a seed that fell among thorns we read about it in Luke chapter 8. I could have copied all these verses and pasted them into my notes. But this is Bible school. And we're going to look at the Bible because I want you to know that this is coming from the Bible. And maybe that's born out of some experience in Haiti. But I, I want you to see that this is the Bible that we're teaching from and not just a cut and paste. Luke 8, verse 14. It's very familiar, but I, the words are so powerful. That which fell among thorns are they which when they have heard go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasure of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. Beware, lest any man spoil you and you be moved away from the hope of the Gospel through the vain deceit of the pursuit of pleasure. It's just like a thorn that grows up and chokes you and, and you become unfruitful. Bring no fruit to perfection. 
I think also about the son that went and wasted his substance. He just went and pursued pleasure. It's such a vain and empty deceit. You would think that no one who had come to know the riches in Christ Jesus would be carried away with this thing. Beware. There's also the pursuit of the sensational. The pursuit of the sensational is a vain deceit. It is an empty deception. But many, many people are carried away with pursuit of things sensational and exciting and dramatic and interesting. Because somebody comes along and says, oh yeah, you're a Christian. Tell me, when's the last time you uh, spoke in tongues? When's the last time your preacher slew anybody in the Spirit? Or, You know, that's kind of far out there. It, we don't, you may think, oh, that's just way out there. That's way out there. But I'm telling you, sisters and brothers, this pursuit of the sensational is a vain deceit that carries people away and causes them to lose their hope in the Gospel. And it's usually people, as I've observed, it's people that are in a hurry for dramatic experiences. They're in a hurry for ultimate Christianity. Now, I'm not opposed to ultimate Christianity. And I'm really not opposed to dramatic experiences. But if you get in a big hurry to have dramatic experiences, or if you get in a big hurry to try to realize some ultimate Christianity, I'm telling you, you are very, very susceptible to be being robbed by vain deceit. I just am glad for this opportunity to read 2 Peter 1, verse 16. To 21. It's just one of my favorite passages and I work it in anytime I can. So, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 says, well, I'm going to just ask one of you brothers to stand and read that and give the sense. You go ahead. 16 to 21. Second Peter. Chapter 1, verse 16. Starting right there, go to 21. Got it. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. And we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you. So what's going on here in this passage? I'm talking about the pursuit of the sensational. 
And what I want you to see here in this account is that Peter had a sensational experience. If anybody had an experience that was sensational, it was Peter. He says, We didn't follow cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. He saw, he saw glorious things and he heard a voice from heaven. I mean, how much more sensational can you get? That was exciting. We had that experience, he says. We had that experience. We heard a voice. We saw Moses and Elijah. Wow! But look in verse 19. And this is what I want you to get. We have a more sure word of prophecy whereunto you do well to take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. This sounds like it might take some time. This sounds like it might take some study. This sounds like it might take a little work. But the promise is that the day is going to dawn and the day star is going to rise in your hearts. And if you're in a big hurry for some sensational experience, you're very, very susceptible to being carried away by vain deceit and robbed of your reward. Robbed of your hope. There's also the pursuit of wealth, which is a very vain deceit. It's not much different than the pursuit of pleasure. But it is unique. And I want to read a verse in First uh, Timothy chapter 6 because I think you may think this is way out there too. This isn't going to touch me. This isn't going to happen to me. It's way out there somewhere. I'm not. No, I won't be carried away by that. Beloved, this is a slippery one. Because in our culture, we have all kinds of ways of justifying the pursuit of wealth. 1 Timothy chapter 6 talks a lot about that. But the one thing I want us to see, and, and I, it's, too, it's very um, intricate, the context. So I'm just going to go with uh, 1 Timothy 6. Verse 5, where it says, Supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself, but godliness with contentment is great gain. This is subtle, but have you ever heard anybody say, and maybe we don't actually come out and say it, but oh, I must be living right. Must be living right. Because, wow, I mean, God is really blessing me. And, I mean, I just, I must be doing something right. Uh, maybe we don't actually come out and say that, but it's pretty, it can sneak in real subtle, and you can begin to think that gain equals godliness. Financial gain can sneak in there and make you think that you're godly. And listen to another way that we do this. Somebody that is financially successful, we may go to them for counsel in areas that they are completely incompetent. 
Only because they are wealthy, we think they must have something figured out. So we go to them for counsel. In that way, I think we're saying that we really think that gain equals godliness. But it says here, godliness with contentment is great gain. But it's the contentment feature and it's the godliness feature that makes that great riches and a great wealth, a great treasure. So, beware. Lest any man spoil you through the vain deceit of the pursuit of wealth. Beware. Lest any man rob you through traditions of men. Traditions of men is another thing that can spoil you and rob you. You're probably thinking, wow, this is going to take us four and a half hours at this rate to get through this passage. And you're probably right. But listen, because traditions is something that we really need to understand what the Bible's talking about when it's talking about traditions. There are times when the Bible is talking about traditions and it is to denounce them. There are other times when traditions are very helpful and, and we need to keep the traditions. So don't allow yourself to be confused by this because there's other people that will come along and say, oh yeah, you're, you're stuck in tradition. You're stuck. You're never going to realize the hope of the Gospel because you're stuck in traditions. But that's... We need to make sure we know what kind of traditions the Bible is talking about in this verse here. And I want you to... to um, we don't have time to completely do a, a, a justice to that term and how it's used in the Bible. But Jesus used that term in Mark chapter 7. And I think it is in this sense that Paul is using it in Colossians. Mark chapter 7 is a very familiar place where people will get this thing out and start beating one another up with this verse here that says, well, I'll just read this, this passage here. It says, in verse 6, I'm in Mark chapter 7. Mark 7, verse 6. He answered and said unto them, Well, has Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now let me just say, this thing happens all over the spectrum. I don't want you to get the idea that this only happens in very traditional settings. This kind of shallow hypocrisy happens all over the religious, the Christian spectrum. I've seen it everywhere I've been. This kind of shallow honoring with their lips and their heart is far from me. Don't let anybody try to tell you that this only happens in traditional settings. Okay. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, for laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. Paul also uses this term other places, and I particularly like the way Paul presents this theme. I didn't even notice what what time did this thing start? 
He giveth more grace. Okay. I want us to look in 1 Timothy verse chapter 1, verse 4, where it says, Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith. That fables is the same thing that we're talking about with traditions in this context of Colossians chapter 2. That uh, also in chapter 2, verse 16, I think it must be 2 Timothy 2, 16, because 1 Timothy 2 does not have 16 verses. Uh, be shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase into the more ungodliness. Um, 4 verse 7 says, But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. Okay, I'm just trying to establish what does the Bible mean about the traditions of men because they're probably going to come and try to steal you, steal your hope in the Gospel with this thing of traditions of men. As, as Anyway. What are some traditions of men that, that make void the commandment of God? And I, I'm going to go out on a limb here. But I would say a wedding band is a tradition of men. Where did that thing come from? I'm sorry, but that is a tradition of men. I'm not saying that that tradition of men is going to take you away and ruin your hope in the Gospel. I'm just saying there are traditions of men such as purity rings and whatever these bands are that people are wearing nowadays. I don't know what those things are, but that looks like a tradition of men. The only thing that can happen to us through those kinds of things, those are, those are maybe poor examples. Um, if you think, if, if this little band, if you think, for some reason, if I don't have my purity ring on or my band that says whatever it says on it, that somehow I'm just going to not be faithful, then it becomes something you're relying on rather than being rooted and grounded in Christ. Maybe another better example would be Christmas trees are a tradition of men. Now, I'm not saying never use Christmas trees. I'm just saying these are some traditions of men that if that they can take on a, a symbolism or a reality that is way out of proportion. Or Black Friday, that's a tradition of men. But superstitions, I think, probably best fits this tradition of men. Superstitions. And I'm not that familiar with a lot of them, but, well, maybe I better just stop right there. I think you know what I'm talking about. Black cats and, and throwing salt over your shoulder and those kinds of superstitions. Those are traditions of men. And, and if you begin to believe those things, it can rob you of being rooted and grounded in Christ Jesus. Another thing he says here is beware lest any man spoil you through the rudiments of the world. The rudiments of the world, what is that? I would just say that things like political correctness, these are rudiments of the world. This is something the world says, you've got to do it this way. If you don't do it that way, You'll never succeed. You can't do it that way. 
This is the way we must do it. And political correctness, if you're going to be political correct, forget it. You can't be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Just like he, he said today about civil unions and, and the things and the laws that are coming to our country. If you think that you can walk by the rudiments of the world and be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're going to be robbed of your hope in the Gospel. You can't be politically correct and be a disciple. And even cultural etiquette sometimes can really get in the way. Social pressure is another rudiment of the world. Social pressure. It's just a rudiment of the world. It's, a, it's a, something that the world has set up and, and we don't necessarily ever talk about it, but there's these little things, these pressures that you have to do them if you're going to fit in and be right. And even social pressure like fashion is very much a social pressure. Or owning a house can be a social pressure. Having only one child can be a social pressure. And you might think, oh, that's way out there. Way out there. Never come in to our setting. Being a career woman, beware. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Not after Christ, for in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in Him. You are complete in Jesus Christ. Could we just sing that one verse of that song? Complete in Thee. Complete in Thee. for that. It's okay. It's okay to pursue a dream or a career or a wife or a farm or a car or a ministry. It's okay to pursue those things. But if you think these things are going to make you complete somehow, you're vulnerable to being robbed of your hope in the Gospel. You are complete in Jesus. The Word of God says right here, put your finger on it in verse 10. Put your finger on it right there. It says, you are complete in Him, sister. You are complete in Jesus Christ. You are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power in whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. And I'm not going to go into all these things, but they just show us how 
We have received Christ Jesus the Lord. Meditate on these things. Um, be established in this truth here. Be established in this truth. As it says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith. This stuff right here. The stuff that talks about being circumcised and being buried with Him and risen with Him and quickened together with Him and He's forgiven us. And He blotted out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us. Be established in that truth. And don't let anyone with their philosophy and their vain deceit come along and try to convince you otherwise than that you are complete in Jesus Christ. And that He has forgiven you. And that He has blotted out, blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. Listen to this too in verse 15. This is good stuff. And you need to be established in this stuff if you're going to make it. If you're going to be rooted like these trees over here. And if you're going to be a boat that has anything below the waterline, you need to be established in this thing right here in verse 15. It says, And having spoiled principalities and powers, He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. This is one of the things that Jesus has done for us. He spoiled principalities and powers. He robbed them. And we are His treasure. He spoiled them. It's over. Be established and rooted in this truth. The next thing we want to look at then is let no man therefore judge you. This is our second warning. Second warning, let no man therefore judge you. This is man's religion. Man's religion. If being spoiled, beware lest any man spoil you was man's wisdom, this is man's religion that may attempt to judge you. Now, this is another one of those things that needs qualified by the Scriptures to understand what we're talking about. And I want to give you this quote right now on judge not. Because that is something... I, surely you've lived long enough to have someone say to you, well, the Bible says not to judge. If you've never heard that, let me see your hand. Okay, that's what I thought. Nary a hand. For you in the front row, there was no hands back there. What, what is that about? I just want to give you this quote by Paul Washer. On, on judge not, he says, twist not the Scriptures lest ye be like Satan. Someone says to you, judge not that ye be not judged. Twist not the Scriptures lest you be like Satan. So, what is this talking about? Let no man therefore judge you. Let's look at Galatians 3 for a little bit of... Um, well, let's just read that verse entirely first so that we know what we're talking about. Verse 16, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man therefore judge you. Let's look in Galatians 3 really quickly. 
Galatians has a lot to say on that particular thing about man's religion coming along and trying to steal and rob us of our hope in Christ. Galatians 3, 1-5. Let me just have a brother read that for us. You want to do that, don't you? Amen. Stand. Yep. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that ye should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you in the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Thank you. So beware. Let no man therefore judge you. Now this is going to hit other people. Whereas the man's wisdom and the philosophies and the vain deceits are going to uproot some people and cause them to be moved away from the hope of the Gospel, this thing about man's religion and religiosity and religious acts and religious observances is more attractive to certain personalities and certain bents of nature. This thing is really subtle. You may think it's way out there. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth even as though He were crucified right here among you. That's how evidently Jesus Christ had been presented to them. This only would I learn of you. Received you the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Was it by religious observances? that you received the Holy Spirit? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? This is real. This is right here among us. Judging one another in meat and drink and holy days. Well, you, gotta, you know what I'm talking about, I think. I don't really want to get too specific. <laughs> but this kind of thing can uproot a young disciple that's not fully rooted and grounded and can sort of take them away and now they've got a they've they've pretty soon <laughs> they're growing their these things down here and all kinds of things. It's not way out there, beloved. I want you to beware. Let no man therefore judge you. Let's look at Galatians chapter four, verse eight. This is Bible school. We're going to look in the Bible. Galatians chapter 4, verse 8. I'm just going to come over here and get another reader. You there? Yeah. Okay. We're going to go 8 to 11. Howbeit then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon your, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Thank you. 
So you get the point, I think. <clears throat> Let no man therefore judge you. Let's beware that we don't get moved away from the hope we have in the Gospel by someone who comes along with a religious... Because some of us are attracted to religious observances and it feels good to do these religious things. And I tell you, you can get carried away and spoiled and robbed and that, that road will drop you off at nowhere and leave you on the side of the road. That road will. I've seen it happen. Be respectful of religious observances, but do not allow yourself to become a slave to them. That's really what I want to say about religious observances. Okay, the third warning here in verse 18 says, Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. I would call this man's spirituality. There is a really, it is really hip to have some kind of spirituality in the world today. We're not really living in, a, in an atheistic society anymore because we've got new, trendy, more, more interesting things to think about than the fact that there is no God. There's all kinds of interesting little ideas out there about spirituality. As long as you don't dogmatically say that God created and, and revealed and Jesus died, then your, your spirituality is good. It's actually really hip to have a spirituality. I don't know if hip is even a cool word to say anymore. Okay. Hipster? Thank you. That's not in my notes, but anyway. In the ESV, it reads this way. Let no man disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worshiping of angels, etc. Let no man disqualify you. Beware that lest any man beguile you through this very interesting sounding spirituality. And, and not only is it out there, it's, it's not. Because there's people that will weave that kind of weird Eastern mysticism and spirituality into the Bible. And now pretty soon we're, we're going to Christian yoga. God forbid. Beware. I'm warning you. Beware about this kind of spirituality. Lest anyone disqualify you insisting on asceticism and, and worshiping of angels. The Bible talks about this in 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4, 1-6. I'm not going to go into it entirely, but it just says, "...the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, 
And this is where the asceticism business comes in. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. So there's this, this strange relationship between asceticism and this spirituality that if you... I don't, even, I don't really know that much about it and I'll tell you why. The Bible says to be wise concerning that which is good and simple concerning evil. Now, I feel like to some extent I need to be equipped. But I, don't, I think that we can get a little carried away in our equipping and we, can, we, we tread on some thin ground there and pretty soon we can get carried away and, and next thing you know we've got this fascination with spiritual warfare and whoosh! We're all carried away and that's the only thing there is. Spiritual warfare and and all kinds of stuff. That's a reality. But I warn you, and the same goes for this, this Eastern religion and spirituality. I don't really know how to warn you totally because I don't know that much about it. I know a little bit and I sort of know, I, I sort of know how to sniff it out when I, when I get whiff of something like that. Uh, I maybe should have done some more homework on that for you. Probably would have been good. But this much I see in this text, at least, and that's what we're doing is we're reading the text and not Wikipedia. Let no man beguile you of your reward in voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. Now that's surely way out there. We wouldn't do that. Listen, if an angel is a messenger, and we can worship messengers if we're not careful, and we can get all kinds of carried away with this certain unique messenger. I've seen it happen a lot. A very interesting and charismatic and dynamic messenger comes along. And we get this obsession and this inordinate fascination with this messenger. And while no one would ever, ever say they worship the man, they have all the elements of worship are there. I mean, he can do no wrong. The ground that he walks on is sacred. It's happening just... It's going rampant in our town in Haiti. There's a, there's a dynamic man. He actually came to faith in the Mennonite church where we, where we are. I don't know what happened there. I, one of the things I, as I've been able to learn and grow in, in understanding what, what's going on there, they got a little carried away in the, in the spiritual warfare thing. And the leadership didn't come along and walk beside them and say, yeah, that's, that's a truth. And then guide them and teach them and, and keep that thing in balance. So it was a, you know, there was a lot of factors. But this man, he knows theatrics. He is impressive. He is very engaging and, and captivating to listen to. He is leading a lot of people astray. I mean... It's a little hard to just pin it and just say, 
that man is a false prophet. It's a little hard to do that. But I think we have some of the same things happening in our people that are influencing us. And I want to warn you about that. There's people influencing you and your friends in Ohio, in, in Washington. They're dynamic people. They're gifted. But let's be careful lest anyone beguile us and rob us of our hope in the Gospel by the worship of messengers. And that becomes a vehicle that carries us away into all kinds of wild and strange doctrines. You may think that's way out there, but it's not. And if you haven't come in contact with it, it's a good chance you will very soon. So beware and let no man beguile you of your reward because they, verse 19, they don't hold the head from which the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. So those are our three warnings. Let's look at how we can be rooted and grounded in Christ Jesus so that no one move us away from the hope of the Gospel. Now, I'm just not very fond of, of going arbitrarily out there and saying, well, take this thing, take that thing, and take that thing. So I'm looking for clues here in our text of how can we be rooted and grounded. Because I believe it's probably here. And I believe there's probably more here than what I've been able to observe in the, in the month or so that I've been meditating and poring over this passage. But the first thing I see, if we are going to be rooted and be ready and not some styrofoam cup flitting around and tossed about by every wind of doctrine and the slight of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they do lie in wait to deceive, what are we going to do? What do we need? What must we have? We must have Christ in us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. And this thing is a mystery, and I, I struggle with it from this, in this respect. Because we're so familiar with it, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It just kind of goes, yeah. And maybe that's why we're so attracted to some new thing. Something new. Something that's got a little bit of a different edge. A little different. You know, we want something a little more interesting than Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's read this here. I stopped reading in verse 23, at the colon, after heaven, semicolon. Because it is there that Paul, he talks about his ministry. And that wasn't important to us until now. Where have I, Paul, and made a minister? He's talking about this gospel, which ye have heard, which was preached to every creature which is under heaven. Where have I, Paul, and made a minister? 
who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for His body's sake, which is the church. Whereof I am made a minister according to the stewardship of God which is given to me for you. I am made a servant according to the stewardship of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the Word of God. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to His saints. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is the first thing we must have if we are going to be rooted and grounded and not moved away. Christ in you. There's nowhere else to begin. If Christ, if the Spirit of Christ be not in you, what does it say? Let's say that together. That's if the let's. How does it go? Maybe I'm not getting that started right. There we go. Let's say that together. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we've talked about that a little bit here this week. About having the witness in yourself. Do you know that you know that you know? Are you saved? Do you have that witness in yourself that you are saved? The Bible tells us that we should know. You should, you must know. If you have the Son of God, you will have a witness, bearing witness in your heart that you are a child of God. If you do not have that witness tonight, I beg of you, don't leave without it. Because you are wide open. You're not going to make it. There's no hope outside of having Christ Jesus in you. And then he says there's this hope of glory. Now this, I could get all kinds of carried away with this hope of glory thing. What in the world is glory? Can somebody tell me what glory is? Wait. Wait? Okay. I'm sorry, but that don't help me very much. What is glory? What is glory, guys? You guys know what glory is? Glory! I mean, we're talking about big old motorcycles. No? Like a a big old truck that's like a 350 or something (laughs) with big tires on it. Isn't that glory? Why isn't that glory? What do you sisters think glory is? Glory. Beauty or strength? Beauty. Or strength. Polyester. <laughs> That's what it is. Glory. None of that. That is just... We're talking about weight. And what did you say? Beauty or strength. Or strength. Interesting. 
So when, when someone gets a, a gold medal, is that glory? I heard something I didn't catch. <laughs> Let's look at um, 1 Corinthians 9 a little bit. I don't know. I just It's one of those, maybe that's my philo verity sense. It's getting carried away, but okay. I'm looking for this right here in First Corinthians nine, verse twenty-four. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I not as one that beateth the air. But the point I wanted there was the the crown. There is a crown, but it's a corruptible crown. Is the crown the glory? No. No, it's not. The prize. The crown is the prize. So what happens when the prize goes to the wrong person? Outrage. No one will stand for that. What about when the, when the person who won the prize is later disqualified? What happens? Humiliation. There's no glory. There is no glory if you don't Get it legitimately. And the, the prize is not the glory. I don't know if you're following, if you're tracking with me or not. Where I'm going with this thing is this. If even, even that tree, okay, what makes that thing majestic? Why would we say that? That is, has glory to it. Because it has endured for years and years and years. It's the fact that it has strength that has withstood all kinds of things that gives it glory. This is what I'm thinking. So my conclusion is this, that it is victory. It's overcoming. It's things like triumph that really are the glory. And there is a reward and there's a crown that goes along with that. But that really isn't the glory. Because if you just went around... Okay, there's another example. If I, Let's say I have this beautiful trophy and I show you that thing. What do you think about this? That's pretty nice. Yeah. So if you were to ask me, wow, where'd you get that? I bought this thing for $1,000. <laughs> there is no glory there at all. Do you see what I'm saying? There's no glory because I did not win that thing. I bought it. That tree won its place in time by long standing. And that's why an older person with gray hair has a glory about them. You can dye your hair gray if you want, and there is no glory. Whatsoever. But if that gray hair represents 
having stood the tests and the stresses and the trials and the temptations of time, then it's like glory. That's a crown of glory. Just putting gray hair on you doesn't make for glory. So it's the triumph. It's the victory. It's the overcoming that's the glory. And where is our hope of triumph? Where is it? In Christ. Christ in you, the hope of triumph, brother. Christ in you, sister, the hope of overcoming. There is no other hope. And beware lest anyone beguile you. So you must have Christ in you if you're going to triumph. We need to be rooted in Christ, number one. Let's go on here. We need to be rooted in community. I'm looking for these things in the text. We need to be rooted in community. And now I did, I trust this is not eisegesis. I don't know. You can, you can tell me what you think. But let's read here in the beginning of chapter 2. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love. So if you're going to be comforted and knitted together in love, what are we talking about there? What do we need to have? If we're going to be comforted and knit, that sounds like a little different metaphor than rooted, but it has a little bit of the same connotation. Knitted together in love. I would suggest to you that if you're going to make it, you must be rooted in community. You must be. Rooted in community with a teachable spirit. That means you're living and you're contributing as a committed constituent of a community. You cannot be passive in your community and expect to be knitted into that thing. And I don't know if anybody has a a scarf, like a knitted scarf. I don't see any. Apparently they're not cool right now. (laughs) Last year I probably could have seen... One on every neck. Scarves. But apparently not this year. That's alright. But in a scarf that's knitted, and my daughter likes to knit things, how many cords, how many threads are in that scarf? It may be seven feet long and this wide. How many threads are in that thing? One thread. Just one thread. And it knits that whole thing together. And what I'm trying to convince you of by the Word of God is that if you're going to, to not be moved away from the hope of the Gospel, you are going to have to be rooted in community. You're going to have to be knitted together by the Holy Spirit in love. And let's look also in verse 19 because I think we see another part of this thing and it uses another metaphor but it, it's communicating the same idea that you must be rooted in community if you're going to make it. If you're not rooted in community, 
you're not going to make it. You're going to be tossed about by every wind of doctrine and the slight of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. You're going to be moved away from the hope of the Gospel, which is glory, by the way. Verse 19 says, holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increases with the increase of God. If you want to increase with the increase of God, brother and sister, you're going to have to be rooted in community. You have to be an active, participating member in a community with a teachable learner spirit if you're going to make it. If you want to be rooted and grounded, if you want to make it, you must be rooted in community. The second thing I see in the text, now, again, <laughs> okay, the second thing I, third thing I see in this text is you must be rooted in reality or the truth. You must be rooted in reality. That's, I mean, that's almost as obvious as being in Christ. But it's in the text and I want to elaborate on it just a little bit. And I think it's probably, again, it's obvious, but it's sometimes the obvious things that we easily miss. It's the obvious things because we've heard them and we, we just hear it all the time and we sort of... Um, familiarity breeds contempt a lot of times. doesn't have to, but a lot of times it does. And that's not a, a, um, an ultimate statement, but... You must be rooted in reality. And what I mean is, you must have the truth. You must pursue the truth. You must seek the truth. You must... And not, I'm, I'm talking not merely propositional truth. What is propositional truth? Right here, I'm going to ask you. What's propositional truth? If something is merely propositional, what is that? What are we talking about? It's just a suggestion. It's a proposition. Yeah, I guess that would be true. You want to comment on propositional truth? That's okay. It's not in the text anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> what I mean is, yes. Is it what the speaker did this morning? <laughs> <laughs> Which speaker? <laughs> propositional truth is whenever... <laughs> we may say um, this is a cup of water. It's a propositional truth. And it can remain a propositional truth until you come up here and you test it out and you find out that yes, this is a cup of water. And you experience it. Then it's no longer merely propositional truth. And I don't want us to treat the Bible that way. To where we just fill our minds with these things and they mean nothing to us. We don't engage them. We never get a hold of the lever. We're just pushing. We never get a hold of the lever. Because we just fill our minds with propositional truth and just, isn't this a great text right here? Well, what's that doing? How does that engage? Where does the rubber meet the road in that thing? Let's look here. In verse 2 again, it says, 
And I'm going to start at the beginning. That your, their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm, what I'm getting out of that is that we need to spend time in the Word of God. And we could get the same metaphor of a tree planted by rivers of water out of Psalm 1, where it says, what does it say there? If I could, if I could give you a formula for success, a, a guarant- if I could say to you, I can tell you something that you could do and no matter what you do, it will prosper. I could sell that. I could sell that thing. What? I've got a formula. And if you do this, everything you touch will prosper. The Bible makes such a claim. But not very many people are willing to pay the price. What is the price? In Psalm 1, everything you do will prosper. This is a shame. Yes. I was saying this is a shame if we have to turn to that and look at it. That should be right on the tip of our tongues. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sitteth in the way, uh, stand in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in that law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. We have to be rooted. And I say rooted in reality, rooted in the truth, rooted in the Word of God, however you want to say it. Because there, is a, there are riches of the full assurance of understanding. This is just, it's, it's such a mouthful that I think we miss it. But there's three, three times the Bible says there is full assurance. And that's why I'm convinced that you must have assurance. And if you don't have assurance... Something's wrong. You must have assurance. The Bible says three times we have full assurance. Here it says the full assurance of understanding. In Hebrews, it says the full assurance of hope. And then another place in Hebrews, it says the full assurance of faith. I think it's in Hebrews... I didn't write these references down. Um, I know the second one. The full assurance of faith is in Hebrews 10. You can look them up. Full assurance of understanding. How are we going to get that? By the Word of God. By reading it. By meditating on it. By applying it. By walking in it. By making it more than merely propositional. By engaging in it. So that we we begin to have This doesn't happen overnight. This isn't a quick fix. It doesn't happen overnight. But you must, if you're going to make it, you must be rooted in the Word of God. And if you will apply yourself to the Word of God, 
in a patient, persistent, consistent way, you will begin to have a full assurance of understanding. And in that full assurance of understanding, you're going to begin to affirm truths about God. That's really what that phrase means. The acknowledgement of the mystery means that you're going to affirm things that are true about God. Because we can't always understand things about God, but we can affirm them as true because we have this full assurance of understanding that's beginning to develop in our lives. And it's that full assurance of understanding, it's that being rooted in the Word of God that's going to keep you from being moved away from the hope of the Gospel whenever the, the rudiments of the world and the, and the vain talkers and all these people come knocking. Fourth thing I see here that we must have. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Now this may be a case of eisegesis, I'm not sure. But the fourth thing I see here is rooted in heritage. I think it's important, and I think the text here will support this. <laughs> that sounded like eisegesis right there. <laughs> that was eisegesis. I think it's important, and I think the text will support it. Huh. Well, we got red lights going off. I want you, beloved, to be rooted as you have been taught abounding in thanksgiving. Somebody taught you the Gospel. You didn't discover it on your own. You didn't go out there and you didn't... Maybe someone here did. I don't know, but I don't think that happened among our, our students here. That, that you went to a motel and you found a Gideon Bible and you started to read it and you came to faith. I would say, I can almost say 100% of you, someone taught you the Gospel. The Word of God, at least. Someone taught you the Word of God. Someone taught you about God and about Jesus Christ. And that's the part that I want to emphasize tonight as the final thing that I want you to be rooted in. And I say rooted in heritage. I don't know. I just want you to be rooted and built up in Jesus and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Now, I want to uh, further emphasize this point. I, it's, it's pretty tempting sometimes in our reaction to another, an older generation to just pretty soon they didn't do us any good. Pretty soon there was nothing that they taught us that was any good. But if you look in Romans chapter 3, I think we can find a little mirror there. It says, What advantage then hath the Jew? In verse 1, Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way. Chiefly because 
that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Let, every, let God be true, but every man a liar. What I'm seeing here is those of you and those of us who have been raised in a Christian home are like these Jews here. Somebody taught you. What advantage then hath the child raised in a Christian home? If much every way. Much every way. I think it, I don't know, there's just a, it's pretty easy to, to um, we listen to someone's glowing, glorious testimony of how they were saved from the, from the um, gutter. And they have this powerful testimony and this glorious life. And we think, oh man, you know, that just must be awesome. And we begin to kind of wish that maybe, you know, we hadn't been raised. I don't know how all these things work, why we do this to ourselves, but it happens. And pretty soon the guy that didn't have a Christian home is at an advantage and we're somehow at a disadvantage because we were raised in a Christian home and taught all these things and we got all this baggage. And... <laughs> so, someone taught you and for anyone listening now or in the future if you didn't have that opportunity God bless you but someone somewhere taught you and in that person there is a wealth of heritage and you are being invited into that heritage because if it wasn't for that heritage it would just be like a styrofoam cup. I mean, I'm just saying, somewhere there's a heritage of, of generations of godly people who were serious about living out their faith and transmitting it to another generation. And if you're a first generation Christian, praise the Lord. You've been invited into something that is a glorious heritage. And we can be rooted in that heritage. I also think of Timothy in this same context. I hope, yeah, I don't want to give too many disclaimers here. 2 Timothy 1 verse 5 says, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. Look at the heritage that Timothy had. Anyway, all right, maybe we could elaborate. But I think the point has been made that we need to be rooted and built up and established in the faith as we have been taught. So, you, beloved, you were sometimes alienated and enemies in your minds by wicked works. But now, Jesus has reconciled you. He wants to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the Gospel, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. You've received, so walk. 
rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We have a tremendous hope. A tremendous hope that we can overcome. We will be triumphant in Christ. Turning to 976 in the Faith and Praise songbooks. Also, I would appreciate it if you would turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. I want to offer this word of testimony to what we've heard tonight. As you think about the call to be rooted disciples, our brother has shared these calls from his study, from his heart, from years of wrestling and prayer and and searching the Scripture and discussing. And he's calling out to us tonight through the Word of God, to let no man spoil you, let no man judge you, let no man beguile you. And I thank the Lord for that, and I want to say amen. Now, I want to remind you of two men as we close. And I'm thinking about the root systems of these two men. Two different men. Both of them were companions and helpers of the Apostle Paul. Both of them accompanied him and assisted him. One of them we we find, and and you don't need to turn to this, but but, uh, he's referred to in the book of Colossians, the same book our brother was speaking out of tonight. And we read in, I believe it's in Colossians 4, Luke, the beloved physician greeteth you, and Demas sends greetings to you. So there's one man I, I want to think about as Demas. Both of these men were helpers and companions of the Apostle Paul. They were both sending greetings to the church because of their love for the church and for other believers in Christ Jesus. Another man we find in the book of Acts, about the 13th chapter, something like this, As Paul and Barnabas launched out on the first missionary journey, it says these two men went out being sent by the church and they had also John to their minister. That's the second man I want you to consider. That John is John Mark. John Mark. Demas and John Mark. Now both of these men experienced some struggles in their lives. And I want to remind you that it says... 
that both of them, well, I'll just give you this glimpse. It speaks, first of all, of John Mark. A little later on in Acts 13, we don't even get out of Acts 13 that it, that it says of John Mark as he was accompanying Paul and Barnabas, it says, and, and Mark departed from them and went back, I forget where. He departed and left. Later you find at the end of, of Acts 15 that, that Paul and Barnabas decided they wanted to go back to the churches and see how they do. And, and, they want, and, and Barnabas wanted to take John Mark along. And Paul didn't want to take Mark because he had departed from them and went not with them to the work. We've got a man who departed and who left and went not to the work. <clears throat> but I want you to look with me here at 2 Timothy 4. I think we're going to see something about two men, both had struggles, both had failures, but there's something different in their root system. Look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 4. We'll read verse 9, 10, and 11. Would you please read out loud with me 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, 10, and 11, and consider the root systems of two men. Here we go. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Cretans to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. I see two different root systems here. Both men had struggles. Both men had failures. Both men turned back a bit. But one, we never hear of him again. The last thing we heard is that he loved this present world. That man was robbed. He was beguiled. The other man, he went back for a while. Then he came back and he became profitable in the ministry. And he became influential as he received the inspiration of the, the Spirit of God and wrote the Gospel of Mark. Two men, two different root systems. A couple other comments, and we want to shortly close. <clears throat> I so appreciate this reminder that, of what we want to be rooted in. And some of you will remember this. A, a few years ago, we brought here to this Youth Discipleship Week. It was kind of a last minute idea I had. And, and I had heard of this being done. And maybe I tried it once, I'm not sure, but I wanted to give it a try. So I went down to Safeway and I bought a, a big bundle of white carnations. And we brought them in here on the table and, and we split those carnations into four different little bundles and took four different vases and put four different colors of food coloring in each of those vases. And then put the white carnations all from the same bundle in each one of those vases. Can you picture what I'm talking about? Four vases, four different colors of food coloring. I think we had blue and red and yellow and green maybe it was. And I thought we're going to see if what I've heard happens really happens. We're going to see what these, if what these things are rooted in is going to have any effect upon them. And I thought it might take till the end of the week, but let's see what happens. And, and we put some labels, I think, on the yellow one. We put fearful, unbelieving, retreating Christianity. 
And maybe on the red when we put cool, casual, comfortable Christianity. And maybe on the, the blue one, I, I don't remember what all the titles were, but the, you get the idea. And the, all from the same white bundle, four different vases. And I thought it might take all week, but the next morning, I went out early in the morning. And you can imagine what happened. The flowers that had been white, that were now in the yellow vase, now had already tinges of yellow throughout those beautiful white flowers. And the flowers that were now rooted in the blue vase already had beautiful blue tinges in those carnations. And the flowers that were in the red vase already had red uh, tinges in, in the white flowers in those carnations. And, and so with each of them. So this subject is important. We want to be rooted and we want to be rooted in the right things. And we've heard about being rooted in Christ, being rooted in community, being rooted in reality, and being rooted in heritage. <clears throat> Turn with me to this 976th hymn. I guess I want to, I feel to say one other thing. We talked about this last night a little bit. There's a proverb. I can't quote the address in the book of Proverbs, but it, I believe it quotes something about like this. Wherefore is there price in the hand of a fool to get wisdom, seeing he hath no heart for it? It's an interesting question. We talked about that and I asked some of you how much it costs you to come here for just one opportunity, just one week of discipleship, one week of, of backing up from the normal pressures of life and spending time with various brothers teaching from the Word of God in times of prayer and singing and, and those kinds of things. Just one week, it's only a small part of life's experience. But you paid a price for that. And Proverbs asks, as we said last night, it asks this rhetorical question, why is there a price in the hand of a fool to get wisdom? Why would, would, it, would it would be a very foolish thing, it would be a fool indeed for someone to, to get out four or five hundred dollars and buy a plane ticket and pay tuition, six or seven hundred maybe, maybe a lot more if you think about a week off work. Why would you have that kind of a price in the hand of a fool to get wisdom if there's no heart for it? And here's a warning. In several years of young people that have experienced just this one opportunity, some of them are the are some of the finest and strongest and most solid believers I know, not because of this, but because they have chosen to be rooted in Christ. But some of them, only a few years, not very long back, remember, Pete kept asking, we think this is way out there, but some of them who sat right in these two front rows have been robbed. They've been robbed of the price to get wisdom. And they lost heart for it. And they've been spoiled with philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of the world and not after Christ. And I'm sorry to say that. And I pray for them. And I pray that they'll be 
John Marks. <laughs>